Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this podcast, titled Rossini's Plucky Mezzos, Dr. Holly Plugel Wong, LA Opera Connect's affiliated scholar, presents a historical and cultural context behind Italian opera, exploring voice types, characters, and how these influenced Rossini's work. This recording was created as part of LA Opera Connect's professional development series for teachers, Opera for Educators. Hi, folks. I hope this finds you well. Uh, thanks to LA Opera Connects for inviting me back to speak today. And I'll be speaking today a bit about uh, Rossini's plucky mezzos, some particular singers that he worked with, and why he got to the point where he was um, writing these incredible roles like Cinderella, which LA Opera is presenting, um, for this particular voice type. Now, in the world of opera, we talk a lot about voice types. You may have a favorite soprano or a favorite tenor or a bass. And, you know, a voice type is one way for us to describe singers that have similar vocal ranges. Um, and also a way for us to talk about, um, you know, the parts of their ranges that are the most comfortable for them to sing and where they sound their best. So that refers to the tessitura of the voice. And then, you know, talking about voice types is also a way for us to discuss similar points of transition in the voices. You know, you can sort of broadly categorize voice types in um, a sort of most perhaps familiar way, which is the bolded um, terms on the left of this chart here, soprano, mezzo, alto, tenor, baritone, and bass. Um, but within each of these six major types, you also have lots of subclassifications that you can use to identify the flexibility of a voice, which is what, you know, coloratura refers to the most flexible voices, the ones who are most, you know, nimble and deft and able to manage lots of, you know, complex um, uh, note passaggi running around, that sort of thing. And then you have on the other side of that, the dramatic voice, which can handle, you know, really, really big oversized melodies and a large orchestra underneath them, and they can sing over that. Um, so that refers to flexibility and also weight of the voice as well. And, you know, with all these several subtypes, you know, this is just one way also of managing classifications. If you're looking at Wagnerian opera, for instance, there's a whole other, you know, classification mode that we can use there. But in, in dealing with Italian opera, you know, looking at, you know, this model is one that, cause that you know, offers some use. Um, and uh, talking about, you know, how voices work. Now, of course, you know, individual voices are all unique. And, uh, you know, just kind of slotting a certain voice into a type may not be the best thing for that particular singer. There are some singers like, you know, Maria Callas or Shirley Verrett who defied a very strict kind of categorization and they would perform a very diverse range of roles that would be associated with different voice types throughout their careers where Maria Callas was performing you know, arias from the Barber of Seville, but then also doing Norma, for instance, um, which are roles that seem like they're, you know, on different sides of this chart here, and then also even in different vocal categories, soprano to mezzo-soprano. 
So when composers write music for opera, in many cases, you know, they did so with a particular singer in mind and that particular singer's abilities. And so that's why you get some roles that are so seem like they're so specifically tailored to a voice because they were, um, which is the case for a number of these for the two or one of the Rossini operas we're going to look at today. Um, but in tailoring these roles, um, we can also look at the ways in which a character is being rendered through voice and how a composer will select a voice type that would match the current conventions of the time of how you would dramatically portray a character's age, personality, profession, and life experience, and how that's all in accord with dominant ideologies of how those kinds of characters would be portrayed, especially along the lines of gender. Um, since the mid, you know, 19th century, young heroes and operas were typically played by tenors, and then before then, um, a lot of young heroines would be played by sopranos, um, with youth frequently associated with higher voices, and lower voices often being um, associated with age or experience. And so you encounter a number of operas where kings and priests are played by baritones and basses. Um, sometimes baritones are the relatable everyman, like Figaro, for instance, in The Marriage of Figaro, or they might be a villain. Um, now, in the world of opera, though, the mezzo-soprano, contralto um, voice types, um, they're it's a voice type where they're sort of well known to lament that uh, they only ever get to play witches or britches. And these classifications, um, while common, are not entirely set in stone. There are frequent exceptions. And indeed, during Rossini's time, these associations between characters and voice types and how they're rendered in Italian opera were actually under a really interesting period of negotiation. Um, Italian serious opera in the time of Rossini and before the time of Rossini was conventionally the opera of the court of the noble of the nobility. Um, serious opera or opera seria were you know operas that would tell stories about kings or gods and had tale or you know were based on ancient mythology and would often moralize in a way that was ultimately pro aristocracy that you would have these, you know, gods who show mercy. And by extension, you're supposed to sort of read that kind of benevolent um, ruler to, you know, reflect on whatever ruler the opera was being, you know, their castle was being performed in. Um, and so Italian opera seria is a convention that becomes um, very strongly formulaic through the 17th century with a lot of the conventions that you would find in the structure and the form and what you know voice types are associated with what kinds of characters um, were established during this particular time. And a lot of these conventions, um, as far as how the libretto works and when the arias happen and what kinds of arias do the characters get were established by Metastasio, who was an Italian poet who worked for a while at the Viennese court, but his libretti went all over Western Europe and composers from all over the place were setting his works for long, long time. Um, now, Italian comic opera, on the other hand, um, thanks to composers like Pergolesi, um, would ultimately become 
the most socially progressive operatic form um, with plot lines that dealt not with, you know, ancient gods or royalty or noble tragedies, but rather with like contemporary everyday lower and middle class figures who are expressing everyday feelings. And so it's, this is where opera intersects with comedy um, and especially comedy based on the stock character theatrical traditions. And here is where opera becomes more in tune with some of the more contemporary revolutionary ideals that circulate, that circulate during the enlightenment. Um, and these two traditions develop um, in, you know, somewhat uh, unique ways where you have opera buffa, the comic opera featuring ordinary people in the present day where they don't use a lot of complex musical language and complex lyric as you would find in something like a Metastasio libretti. Um, now, by the time though, that Rossini was writing full-length operas for commission, which would have been around 18, 1806, 1810, Italian opera was changing. Um, there had been quite a lot of crossover over the years um, between these two forms that you would encounter every now and again. And also, you know, these forms are starting to fall a little bit out of fashion. The most popular comic style from the, the Neapolitan comic style, um, you know, was somewhat in decline. The conventions of opera seria were also starting to shift away from these very rigid codified styles that were so influenced by Metastasio. Um, serious opera starts to become strongly influenced by some of the musical innovations of comic opera, where you would have these long ensemble numbers and more elaborate scenes with more characters involved and that sort of thing. And then comic opera starts to be inc increasingly influenced by stories that um, maintain a deeper sense of sentimentality. And um, sentimental opera becomes very, very popular um, in the mid to late 18th century. Um, where you would have characters, especially uh, young female characters who are expressing their sorrows and their joys in a musical style that was sort of self-consciously um, popular, drawing on folk song and popular song, um, but also expressing a, um, a, a kind of high virtue that you, know, you might find in a character from a serious opera. Um, Niccolo Piccini's 1760 opera um, sets a um, novel, or first it sets a play, which was adapted from a novel called Pamela, which was about a good virtuous servant girl who ultimately ends up marrying a nobleman. And this opera was so incredibly popular that it affected operas for decades afterwards. And it was a, a well-known, you know, early, very popular example of the so-called sentimental opera, um, which you could, you know, find some traces of in some of Rossini's work, especially Cinderella, where you have this very good, virtuous girl um, who has a folk song as one of her mainstay tunes in the opera um, that sort of helps her get through her sorrow and her joy. So you have some changes in terms of what kinds of stories are being told in operas, the form of operas. And then you also have another major changeover in opera having to do with voice type. Through the 18th century, high voices were dominating the serious operatic stage where you would have sopranos um, played by women outside of Rome anyway, as the leading ladies. 
and male sopranos, that is castrati, as the leading men playing the heroes. Um, so lead roles in serious Italian opera during the 17th and 18th centuries were most often written for men with unchanged voices called a castrato. Um, and so if a young boy showed an exceptionally promising singing voice, his family might turn him over um, to have a um, surgical procedure done where his spermatic duct was severed in order to preserve his unbroken voice. Um, after the operation, the, the child would then undergo intense vocal training with an aim that he would debut on stage or debut in a um, church choir um, soon thereafter. And the operation that produced castrati remained technically illegal in Italy throughout the entire period of their popularity. Um, there was an English music historian, Charles Burney, who traveled through Italy uh, documenting various, you know, musical um, uh, happenings. And he tried in vain to figure out exactly where the operations were taking place that were producing Castrati. Um, and he wrote, quote, I was told at Milan that it was at Venice, at Venice, that it was Bologna. But at Bologna, the fact was denied and I was referred to Florence from Florence to Rome, and from Rome, I was sent to Naples. The operation most certainly is against the law in all these places. So nobody would admit to actually doing, uh, doing this procedure. The castrati became famous, um, like Carlo Grossi here, who's best known by his stage name, Farinelli. Um, they would invent these elaborate stories of some kind of dramatic childhood injury in order to gloss over the reality and to hide the fact that the procedure was done. Um, of course, only a handful of these boys, though, would grow up to become opera stars. Um, others would play smaller roles in operas or would go into um, service of the church uh, singing. And castrati were employed to sing in churches, um, especially in Rome, because of strictly enforced religious tenets in Rome, which prescribed that women should be silent in church. Um, so castrati are first known to have sung in the Sistine Chapel in Rome in the 16th century. And by 1640, it was sort of a common place of employment in church choirs throughout Italy. But in the opera world, though, castrati played male romantic leads in serious operas. And their voices are described as brilliant, as powerful. The large lung capacity of a grown man allowed them to sing very long passages of notes of great complexity, and they had enough breath control to hold a pitch with strength and with the ability to sort of dynamically change um, the volume level of the pitch for a very long time. Um, now, they were never in comic operas, though. To do so would be to invite a certain kind of social ridicule, which, of course, they were always sub all, already subject to culturally. But then they were also adored by audiences and even seen as desirable like rock stars. Um, it's impossible for us, of course, to know exactly what a castrato's voice was like. Was, um, we, um, the recording that we do have of the so-called last castrato um, was made in the early 1900s by Alessandro Moreschi. And he was one of the first, one of the few castrati who was still alive by the time recording equipment was available. Um, this recording is a really interesting artifact in that it raises as many questions as it purportedly seems to answer. So let me just play a couple seconds of this. 
Okay, so this was recording was made um, at the Sistine Chapel. And um, yeah, there are just so many questions that I think come out of this recording. Um, what did this or early recording equipment fail to capture? Um, how did Moreski's voice compare to the voice of some of the great stars of the past, like Farinelli? Um, and also, our modern singing styles and conventions are very different. You hear a lot of, you know, large scoops where he seems to be scooping up to notes, or it seems like he um, approaches the notes with imprecision. But at the time when he was doing this recording, those were considered to be ornaments for dramatic emphasis. Um, but it's difficult for us to listen past that since that's not part of operatic singing convention right now. So in essence, in listening to this, we're trying to pierce through this you know, the crackling limitations of an old recording and an outmoded musical interpretation. Um, in 1994, um, there was a film produced about the life of Farnelli. And um, to create the voice, um, they merged together two voices digitally um, by a female mezzo-soprano and a male countertenor who both went into the studio separately to sing the arias that were used in the film. And then their voices were combined by engineers at IRCOM, which was a, a musical research institute in Paris. And let me play you a few seconds of what they came up with here in this digital merging. So nowadays, um, if an opera house decides to do an opera where the lead male role was originally written for Castrato to play, um, an opera house may either choose to cast a male countertenor, that is a man who's trained their falsetto voice in order to be able to negotiate this, this kind of music, or a female mezzo-soprano or contralto, and then dress them up as a man and have them play the role. In Rossini's day, as the production of Castrati was increasingly condemned, the vogue for this kind of voice is fading out and their numbers are dwindling. Um, for operas performed that called for a castrato, some opera companies started to have female contraltos wear pants and play the hero. And then for others, the tenor voice as romantic hero starts to come into its own, crossing over from comic opera into serious opera. And by the 1830s, the tenor as romantic hero had ultimately taken over. That said, Rossini did harbor a preference and a nostalgia for the castrato voice. He liked the complex virtuosic vocal singing um, that castrati were specifically trained to do extremely well and the unique quality of tone. Uh, later in life, this is, you know, long, long after he, you know, was 
wrote an opera, the only opera he ever wrote for Castrato. He reflected, in my youth, it was my good fortune still to be able to hear some of these fellows. I have never forgotten them. The purity, the miraculous flexibility of those voices, and above all, their profoundly penetrating accent, all that moved and fascinated me more than I can tell you. So Rossini's early career coincided with the last years of Castrati in Italian opera. Um, and he did write one opera with a Castrato role in it um, in 1813, which was pretty close to the beginning of his career as an opera composer. And the opera he wrote was a serious one. And the romantic male lead, which was uh, Arsacci, the Prince of Persia, was written for Veluti, who was a famous Castrato. Um, and he was a star. And he was the kind of the last great one. The last great castrato roles were written for him. Um, and he was the last great opera star uh, castrato to retire in 1830. But by the time Rossini wrote this role for Veluti, um, it was already something of an old fashioned thing to do to write roles for this kind of singer, um, an opera seria role in this musical style for this kind of singer. Um, there was a lot of new opera happening in Italy at the time. A lot of new works and new works were very popular in Italian opera houses. Opera theater impresarios were constantly commissioning new things. Um, in one 16 month span, for instance, of Rossini's career, he wrote seven operas. Um, but of the 39 that he wrote in the time period between 1806 and 1829, it was just one that was written for Castrato. So Rossini's operas were written in a period of change for Italian opera for voices as the practice for writing for Castrati was in decline. But he held on to the sound by writing operas, serious operas, with a heroic male character that was intended to be performed by a woman. So holding on to some aspect of the vocal range and the flexibility in that range that he appreciated in the Castrato voice and having a woman sing in that style. Um, later in his life, Rossini and others would use the term bel canto in retrospect to contrast Italian singing styles from the 18th and early 19th centuries with the heavier dramatic styles that dominated from the mid 19th century on. Um, the bel canto sound is a kind of singing that values a very smooth sounding and effortless sounding production throughout the singer's entire vocal range. So you shouldn't be able to detect much difference in the sound of the voice as the voice moves between low and high registers. Bel canto singers also could execute these very decorative, difficult sounding embellishments like we just heard in the recording from the film Farinelli. Um, and it, do these things in such a way that it just sounds fluid and sounds as though it takes very little effort. Um, quintessential bel canto melodies are long and spun out with, you know, lots of vocal decorations and the orchestra accompanies them in a manner that is not too heavy sounding. So it supports the singer without trying to overpower them. Um, so Rossini was surrounded by singers all his life. Uh, his mother was a singer. Um, she started out as a seconda donna or the second lady in a touring opera touring company, and she eventually graduated to the being the prima donna in that company. Um, and so Rossini got his first important commissions to write an opera for an opera house, thanks to the recommendations from his singer friends that he made in the years where 
he toured around with his mother's company and played instruments in the orchestra pit. Um, what if one of his first champions and muses was Marietta Marcolini, who in her day was billed as a contralto, um, but these days, based on the ways in which voice classifications have changed, um, we would probably call her a mezzo nowadays. Um, she was 12 years older than Rossini, and she was an established star by the time he started working with her. And he wrote five roles for her between 1811 and 1814 when they were working in Venice and Bologna. Um, the first one was a comic opera. She played a female romantic lead who at one point cross-dresses like a man in the army um, at, during one of the comic scenes. Um, the next opera was a opera with a religious subject that was written to be staged during Lent. Um, Customarily in the period of Lent, Italian opera houses in this period were closed unless they were staging works from the Bible. Um, and in this one, she played a um, male character, the King of Persia. In the next one, um, another romantic comedy, she played a romantic heroine, which also involved some cross-dressing where she pretended to be like a twin brother or something like that. Um, in the next one, um, another comedy where she played the female romantic lead. And the last one, Sigismondo, was a drama, again, where she played the title role, the King of Poland. So the comic operas, for the most part, um, that were written for her were roles that featured disguises. Um, and the serious ones were ones where um, she was playing a pants role, where she was playing a male romantic lead. Um, she really enjoyed doing these travesti roles or pants roles. Um, and she was also known to be a really good comic actress. So for the comedies, the roles where she was playing women um, were ones where she got to cross-dress as well, run around in pants and play a character that was very clever and outwitting all of the other characters on the stage. So she was obviously a very, you know, flexible singer and actress that she could do these, you know, serious operas where she played a male romantic lead, but then also do these comedies um, where that, you know, required a lot of humor and energy and, you know, pretending to be men while she's playing a woman, that sort of thing. Um, so after this run where Rossini wrote five operas for her, he was then offered a post in Naples. Um, to be a director of music for the Royal Theatres, which included the Teatro di San Carlo. While he was there, he met and worked with Isabella Colbrun, the prima donna of the Teatro di San Carlo, um, billed as a soprano during her lifetime. But I've also seen arguments that maybe she was a mezzo with a pretty good um, upper range. Um, in Naples, Rossini was on contract to write an opera a year um, and his, the first one he wrote was Elizabeth Queen, Queen of England, which Isabella Colbrun starred in as, um, Elizabeth. And after that, he wrote leading lady roles for her, all romantic, serious operas, all substantial operas for the great opera house in Naples, um, in seven more operas that they did in Naples. Um, and all of these roles that Colbrun, that Rossini wrote for Colbrun, um, are heroines who are noble, if not literally noble in rank as, you know, these characters, then in spirit, they were ennobled. Um, and then they married Rossini and Colbrun in 1822. She did one more opera that he wrote for her, 
Semiramida in Venice, and then she retired from the stage um, in 1824 at the age of 42. Um, they later separated in life, and Rossini went on to have an affair with another woman, but um, for the rest of his life, he would say that Colbron was one of the great interpreters of, of um, the music that he'd written. So finally, while Rossini was in Naples, writing all of these required uh, one opera a year for the Teatro di San Carlo, he was also writing commissions for other opera houses who would send him a letter and say, hey, can you do this opera for us too? Um, and two of those operas that he did in that time when he was writing an opera a year for Naples um, were both for the Teatro Argentina in Rome. And these operas were The Barber of Seville and Cinderella. Um, both of these operas were premiered with the same leading lady, Geltrude Rigetti Giorgi, who was billed as a contralto, but again, likely, you know, nowadays we might classify her as a mezzo based on the ways, you know, classifications have changed. And she was a singer who was known and appreciated for her um, coloratura singing, that is, she had a very flexible, agile voice. Um, she was invited to sing the lead uh, female role in Barber of Seville. Um, after another singer, they'd actually initially approached a different singer to do it, and she turned it down, and they turned to Rigetti Giorgi. Um, and she was very well received and applauded extra, the audience demanding encores at the premiere, despite the premiere otherwise being a total fiasco, uh, mostly because some supporters of another composer who had also written a Barber of Seville opera showed up to Rossini's premiere with their clatter and their chatter and their booze trying to destroy his opera. Um, and um, Rigetti Giorgi actually later wrote a memoir um, to try and make clear what had happened at the premiere in the days leading up to the premiere. Um, at the second performance of Barber of Seville, though, the clack was gone and um, the opera was extremely well received and was a huge success. After the success of Barber of Seville, Rossini wrote Cinderella for her. Let's take a closer look now at these two roles that were written for this, um, this particular singer. So first, Barber of Seville. Barber of Seville was based on a play from a trilogy by the French playwright and revolutionary Pierre Beaumarchais. The libretto um, is a very light, it's a very lighthearted romantic musical comedy that Rossini writes with characters manipulating other characters and being clever and outwitting each other in order to achieve their desired outcomes. And the character of Rosina, the female romantic lead, is right in line with this. She claims to have very sweet feminine characteristics. She's respectful and she's obedient, but she will do whatever she needs to do in order to get what she wants. Um, I'm going to play for you um, a recording in concert um, by Maria Callas, her famous concert in Paris in 1958. Her acting is just so fun in this and so expressive. And there's no subtitles, but through the acting, you'll, I think you'll be able to tell um, what part of the aria you're in. She starts off singing, I'm so sweet, I'm so docile, I'm so obedient, but... If you mess with me, I will become a viper.
Okay, so this is this is the aria. This is the song where we meet this character for the first time, the first time she sings to us. And you hopefully you heard that there are these kind of two parts to it, her sweet side and then her cunning side. And her sweetness is very is very nicely portrayed musically. It's not too fast. There's some, you know, coloratura, fancy note play in there, but not too much. You really get a strong sense of melody. The instrumentation features the sweet little flute that plays along with her. But um, whenever she sings that note, ma, she unleashes this flood of bravura notes, precise and agile. And through that performance, you get this sense that there's no doubt that this is a woman who can handle herself and handle whatever else comes her way. Now with Cinderella, we have a fairy tale story that's familiar, but it's translated into something of a contemporary setting by Rossini. There's no fairy godmother, but instead it's the prince's tutor. There's no terrifying wicked stepmother, but rather the sort of petite, petite bourgeois stepfather who's really concerned with social status and his daughters who are really um, concerned with social status. There's no glass slipper, instead a little bracelet the prince gave her while he was disguised as a servant. So it's got aspects of the comic opera conventions of the time. And it's a tale, ultimately, of good triumphing over evil into virtue rewarded. And it's her appreciation of a humble gift from the prince when he's disguised as a servant. And it's implied rejection of wealth that earns her the, prince, the love of the prince. And the subtitle makes this concept of virtue rewarded very clear. It's la cenerentola, la bonta in trionfo, the triumph of virtue. And so in some sense, it's coming out of that sentimental opera tradition of upholding this ideal of innate nobility within the character, which is something about them that lets them be empathetic with others, even those who don't deserve it. And then because, you know, that character can, you know, embodies that kind of empathy, it, that character then calls upon us to try to extend our sympathy as well and exercise that empathetic muscle a little bit more. So Cinderella or Angelina, as her name is, she's this virtuous classifying heroine. Her character is musically anchored by the folk song she uses. Um, and yet she can also sing these you know, incredible, difficult bravura arias. Rossini wrote this incredible aria for Cinderella to sing at the very end of the opera. Um, and in this scene, she's given the chance by her new husband, the prince, 
to sentence her stepfather and her stepsisters for their abuse of her all those years. But instead of choosing vengeance, she chooses to forgive them. And the assembled court expresses their awe at her greatness and supports her vocally as she celebrates her new life. Let's take a listen and take a look at this. This is Cecilia Bartoli at the Met in 1997. Cinderella is now free to live her best life, and she does so joyfully, having demonstrated her strength through the act of forgiveness. She's a woman who's a survivor and who, again, has the strength to handle herself and handle anything else life throws at her. So to close, I want to take this back to Rossini's real-life Plucky Mezzo who uh, originated these two characters. There's a strange case of a shared aria 
between Barbara of Seville and Cinderella that she ultimately was responsible for, that Rigetti Giorgi was responsible for. Um, when Barbara of Seville was revived for Bologna in 1816, Rigetti Giorgi once again played Rosina in that production. But for that production, she actually took over the big tenor aria at the end of the opera. Um, this was an aria that was intended for the tenor romantic hero to sing. And it's an aria that she did in concert after the first run of the opera in Naples. And then she took the aria over in the Bologna um, production because she liked it. Um, it's a really impressive long piece, an eight minute piece. It's the last solo piece of the opera also. From there on out, it's solos with ensembles and ensembles singing. And it is an aria that delivers the message of revolution that you can love whoever you want and you can reach out across class lines to work together in order to achieve those aims. Honestly, it's a piece that's really difficult. You need a very specific kind of tenor voice to pull it off. Um, I'm going to play for you a recording, a more recent recording of Lawrence Brownlee just absolutely killing it at this really, really difficult um, piece. So you can sound what it, you know, get a sense of what it sounded like. I'm not going to play the whole thing. I'll play um, the the sort of big, you know, melody, the big tune to the end of it. Um, but this is the aria that was written for the tenor romantic lead in Barber that ultimately um, the mezzo-soprano here took over and performed as Rosina in the Bologna version of Barbara of Seville. After she took this over in Bologna, this aria ultimately is dropped out of Barbara of Seville for just being too difficult. It's really only in the 20th century that productions start to put this back in for the tenors to sing. Um, but what Rossini does after she performs this um, is he adapts this bit of music 
into and for Cinderella to sing. And so then it becomes the finale for Cinderella. So to have a Rosina take over this tenor aria in Barbara of Seville is a pretty good example of the power of the singer at this stage in opera's history. Um, before what Lawrence Levine described as the cultural sacralization or sacralization of classical music in the 19th century, in the later part of the 19th century, that is, where the will of composer becomes like the will of God. The conductor then becomes the priest. The musician is a vessel for the message and the audience a silent congregation. Um, when Rossini was working, this was not the sort of convention for producing and receiving opera. Um, she was a star and she did the aria well and Rossini worked with her, showing his usual willingness to repurpose music he'd already written for something in order for it to be rendered hopefully more successfully in another dramatic context. And in the case of Cinderella, it works extremely well and showcases the plucky mezzo to her full ability. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you at the opera. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on Apple iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Remember to share with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera. Bye.